This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. At a very young age, in my early 20s, I was struggling financially, and I started working at the Foxy Lady in Rhode Island. In the early 80s, Michelle was an exotic dancer at a strip club in Providence. As I got to be comfortable in that exotic dancing world, I started little by little meeting the regulars there. You know, celebrities, high-profile brokers, attorneys, slash Rhode Island mob. They would always be sitting in the VIP. And then, on occasions, they would bring in Charles Kennedy. Charles Kennedy was one of the thieves you met in a previous episode. They called him the ghost because he was so hard to catch. My first impression of Charles was a cross between an illegal James Bond and Dracula. He was very mysterious to me. He was very calm and collective. He, he didn't say much, you know, when he was in The Foxy Lady. Um, but a girl told me, well, do you know what he does? He has parties. So one night after work, Michelle and her friend went to one of these parties. I have to tell you, I was a little terrified at first. Gargoyles at his front door, having wolves surrounding my car. I would go in the house. There'd be girls naked walking around, and I was like, okay. The drugs were everywhere. Yes. Um, wherever you wanted them to be, they were there. Oh, the dungeon, too, that basement of his. Wow. He had a beautiful gold jacuzzi, black silk wallpaper with gold trim. You know, it was a fantasy for me. It was exciting for me. I was young. I wanted to have fun. And, um, like, it was something out of uh, Scarface. <laughs> In the early 1980s, drugs were the hottest new criminal enterprise in Providence, and Charles Kennedy was at the forefront. Charles, the ghost, Kennedy, burglar, drug dealer, drug smuggler. <laughs> but his newfound power and wealth would attract some unwanted attention, not only from the cops, but from the old school mobster who'd given him his start. Today's episode, The Rise of Charles Kennedy, drugs, parties, and a pack of wolves. I'm Zach Stewart-Pontier. And I'm Mark Smerling. Welcome to Crime Town. What an incredible group of people, of burglars, all specialists. They were like fanatical, like the Waffen SS. These guys were fanatics. Everybody had their job. As we walk towards the bench, there's Raymond Petriarca, Gerard Wimet to his right, 
I knew that this whole bench was powerful. Everybody went away, so to speak. Tony was in jail and Bucky Barrett was out of the picture. So, you know, we began to take a look at Charlie. Nobody knew too much about him. He was impossible to watch. You know, it's this Providence has got a code name for you. I go, what? He goes, yeah. When they talk about you, they call you the ghost. Because they can't catch you. <laughs> Early on in life, I developed uh, quite a talent for shoplifting and being able to uh, steal just about anything that was locked up. By the time Charles was 18, he had already developed a reputation as a clever young thief. And one day, he was summoned to the adult correctional institutions to meet one of the most powerful figures in the New England mob, Gerard Wilmette, the man who ran the prison for Raymond Patriarca. And Gerard came walking out. Just, he had a fierceness about his eyes and his demeanor, very intimidating. And um, he introduced himself to me. I heard a lot of good things about you and um, I got a good feeling about you. So he romanced me and uh, it said, uh, I think we can make some money. This is what we gotta do. to uh, provide him in prison with things that he needed, contraband stuff. I was smuggling in cases of scotch. I would go to the supermarket and I would buy cases of high C fruit drink. And I had a way where I could pump out all the high C, empty the can. So now I got an empty can and now I got to steam off the labels. I got to make them nice and look like they weren't breached. From there, I would take a little drill and a pump and I'd put the tube down and I would transfer the liquor into the high sea can. It was uh, tedious work. It took hours. Now I gotta go to maximum security where nothing is supposed to get through there. No contraband at all. And they had no problems. The cops there would just, oh, okay. They just bring it through. Charles gained Wilmette's trust. And eventually, Wilmette started to give Charles more responsibility. Wilmette had his own bookmaking operation, which I took over in the 70s. I worked for him. And a bookmaking operation would be small bars or taverns, and they would take sporting good bets. My job was, on a Saturday afternoon, to collect all the money. My job also was to make payoffs to who won on the various bets. It was a, a lot of responsibility, and it was also drew a lot of heat from law enforcement. It was, it was risky, it was risky, but uh, I was always very good at what I did. Charles did well working for Wilmette. But like any good wise guy, 
he was always looking for his next opportunity. So, why drugs? When did that come into your life? Good. Excellent. Excellent. Um, the money's just too good. It's too irresistible. Charles was introduced to the drug business by someone in his old burglary crew, the bug man, Bucky Barrett. Bucky had said to me, he goes, I got marijuana. He goes, uh, you know, if you can move some, ask your friends, real casual, no pressure, ask around. This was, um, I, I don't know, 78 or so. I didn't know anything about drugs. It wasn't my thing. Okay, so what do you do? You, you go to your, your friend who smokes the weed. And in this case, it was a guy named Jimmy Rabbit. Childhood friend, grew up with him. I go to Jimmy, I go, hey, uh, Rab, can you use any stuff? He says, yeah, bring it down. Okay, I got the five pounds. I go to Rabbit's house. He said, this stuff is beautiful. He goes, and it was green, it was Colombian, it smelled fresh. And the price I gave him, he never had a price like that. It took off. I got that quickly involved in marijuana just by that one move. And out of that period, while we're doing the marijuana, Bucky says, um, well, you got any of your friends that want some cocaine? He, he gave me either a half ounce or, or an ounce. And, but he did tell me, he says, you know, if you, if you get some powder or you cut it up, you can increase your profits. Next thing I know, I'm buying a scale. And I, I'm going to buy my first kilo of, of cocaine. My first key was 62500 It was all the money in the world. And I made over 22000 profit on that. It was that easy? Like that? There was no stopping, no stopping. And Charles realized he'd need someone to help with his growing drug business, someone to deal with customers who didn't pay on time. He found the perfect candidate. Once I went to the police station, they took my jacket off. I had a fucking meat hook in this pocket, <laughs> a, an ice pick in this pocket, a fucking blackjack in this pocket. The cop looked at me and says, what the fuck are you? Meet Big Al Blamires. Al is six foot two, 285 pounds, and he looks like a walking refrigerator. He was Charles's enforcer and a street dealer for over a decade. So when I met Charles, you know, he uh, he was gold around his neck. You know, he, he looked, you know, he, he made Mr. T look like a fucking dope, the stuff he had on. Charles and Al hit it off right away. They even gave each other nicknames. Cuz, he called me Cuz. So I, I just started to call him uncle like my Uncle Gary. He says, Cuz. He says, yeah. He says, see if you could earn a little with this. He said, eh, you know, I was never involved in the drugs. He's, but eh, just try it, see what happens. Charles gave Al an ounce of cocaine. I told a few people Friday night, the fucking thing was gone in 15 minutes and my pockets were full of money. I says, I can't believe this. 
I started off with one ounce, then I went up to like maybe 10, 12 ounces, then he'd give me the bags. You know, I was I was making like maybe 10, 15,000 a week when I was, it was unbelievable. It was flying off the, it, you, I couldn't keep up with it. And after all these years, Charles and Al are still friends. Look who's here! Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Uncle! What's up? Uncle! Uncle! They didn't get us yet, and they ain't gonna get us. <laughs> Charles and Al take us on a tour of their old stomping grounds, Oakland Beach. Warm weather's all gone after today, yeah. Yeah, Uncle. Yeah. This is where Charles developed his first network of dealers. They point out vacant lots and rundown buildings. There was a bar here. That's no longer there. There was a bar here. That was a bar. The one across the street was a bar. Everywhere I could throw a stone in any direction, and all these guys were buying my merchandise and selling. Because it was the best merchandise on them. That's why. They're right. If you were buying Coke in the 80s, there's a good chance that it went through my hands. And when someone stepped out of line, there was always Big Al. There was, there was some guy in um, Warwick that used to go, what was his name? Um, oh, Krusty. Krusty. Krusty, the clown. I guess he, he was delinquent for payment or there was some props with him and the ghost. So I had to go talk to him. So I, I pulled up. I got out. I walk in. I bang in a fucking door. Krusty comes to the door. I grab him. I start slapping him in the face. I throw him down, and all of a sudden his wife and there was there was six people in there. They're jumping all over me. I threw one to the fucking screen. They were all screaming. I I I grabbed Krusty and I dragged them down the porch steps. And it was a sunny day, and this truck was brand new right off the lot. And I, I said, Uncle, can I buff out the brand new Fender with his head? I'm rubbing him on the side of the truck. I couldn't stop. Then I just threw Krusty down and we left. I mean, he went into the crab position. Yeah. Trying to <laughs> oh, that was a memorable day. What a day that was, ain't it, Uncle? What a day. With his network of local dealers and Big Al's muscle, Charles started making a lot of money. But by the mid-80s, he saw an even bigger opportunity, moving from drug dealing in Rhode Island to drug smuggling across state and international borders. And it was this move that would put him head-to-head with his old boss in the patriarchal crime family. That's coming up after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. Charles Kennedy had started out selling a few pounds of marijuana. Then he moved to kilos of cocaine and eventually built a network of dealers across Rhode Island. Now, he wanted to expand the operation and become a drug smuggler. The first thing is you have to establish relations with a good contact. And there's that element of trust. 
You just can't go to a source country or a state with conversation. You need money. You need a couple of hundred thousand dollars. So Charles headed south with a suitcase full of money. I went with this kid, uh, Rodrigo. First, we had to go speak in Panama. He had a relative that was in high-ranking military there. They were tight and they were huge. From there, we went over to Colombia to Medellin, and uh, we went into this fish market, and they had brought me into uh, a walk-in freezer. I said, Carlito, I'll show you something. Sure. Open the freezer doors. And what size is from, I don't know, what, 20 by 20 room here? From the floor to the ceiling was just kilos of cocaine. It was just, like, incredible. Once Charles trusted his supplier, he'd send the money through couriers. And to dupe airport security, he often recruited beautiful women for the job. The cash couriers, the girls, I would strategically place on their bodies either 100, 150,000 in different denominations. I had waistbands and rubber uh, workout bands and uh, Velcro strips, and uh, I would buy them like a, a very expensive leisure jogging suit, I guess the, uh, you would call it. Um, off they'd go to the airport, and that is primarily uh, the couriers from my money. After the money was paid, there was the small detail of getting the drugs back to Providence. <laughs> that's, that's a nightmare because you're, you're relinquishing control. Charles transported drugs on planes and in shipping containers, but most of the time, he hired drivers. I'm not driving that truck. I'm not driving that automobile, that RV. It's your driver. So you've got to be like the coach, and you got to say, look, you drive from 8 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon. You go to the motel. Uh, you never speed. You don't draw attention to yourself. You don't drink. You don't do anything. And I had some pretty good people working for me, and it, and it worked. By the late 1980s, Charles had grown his operation into a multi-million dollar empire. Every month, he was bringing in large shipments of marijuana and cocaine, and his lifestyle started to get more extravagant. He bought cars, suits, jewelry, and the fancy house you heard about at the top of the show. Oh, can you give a description of your house in East Greenwich? Castle Dracula? (laughs) I remember the first time that I pulled into this house, and it was, to me, it was like the coolest house I've ever seen. I was eight years old. When Charles was a kid, a family friend used to take him fishing on the property. It was beautiful. It was set in the woods, and it had a long driveway and the privacy, and it was surrounded by hundreds of acres, and the place had stonework, and it had its own little pond. And I remember saying, I'm going to buy this house someday. And you talk about fate. 20 years later, I'm looking to buy my own house. And I didn't want to have next-door neighbors. The realtor says, there just came up a listing. You might be interested in it. It's a little secluded. I said, let's go. 
and I look at the place, I go, I was here when I was a kid. I completely forgot about this place. I bought it. I bought that house. And the house was the perfect place for an extremely cautious drug trafficker. Since it was surrounded by trees and protected by a long driveway, it was nearly impossible to surveil. And there was a lot of room for some pets. Why wolves? Oh, the wolves. Since I was a kid, I associated with them. I, I, I just uh, loved the animal. What a magnificent creature. How uh, independent they were and just so free, so wild. And I said, when I get money, I want to get some wolves. And I see a guy up in Maine who's selling hybrids. So I, I called the guy. And uh, I said, geez, I'm interested. Not so much in hybrids, but a pure wolf. And he says, well, I have them, but I really can't sell them. It's against the law. Oh, I'm sorry, his money talks. I got my wolves off him. It was great, you know, and you listen to them at night. Love to hear them song. I love to be up close with them. I like bonding with them. I go in there and I feed them and I let them out and I'd run with them at night. And the bond was unbreakable. It was really special. The wolves became another part of Charles's mystique. And so did something else he had at his house those parties. Hedonism. Just a lot of music, a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol, no inhibitions. Uh, wall to wall naked girls, strippers, beautiful girls. I don't drink, I don't do drugs, but I do fuck. <laughs> I do love my girls. We're all dressed up, we're just coming from the club, we're running around, having fun, doing coke. Again, Michelle, the exotic dancer from the Foxy Lady. I have to say, even though in Charles's house there's a lot of sex going on, a lot of stuff like that, I didn't put myself into that. I did walk around topless, I did, you know, have fun partying. It kind of pulled you in, you know? You didn't want to leave. And these parties were popular. Charles has shown us photos of guys who would go on to become prominent Rhode Island politicians and high-profile criminal lawyers, all partying at his house. Some of them are still in office today. They all partied. They all were there. They wanted to be around pretty girls, obviously. They wanted to, you know, naked girls walking around. Who wouldn't? I mean, I don't know. I just, that's, that's why they were there. But becoming the state's largest drug supplier had an obvious downside. It wasn't easy being, you know, the top dog. In Rhode Island, this little fishbowl we live in, there's so much jealousy, especially, you know, organized crime factions. They know you're doing well. You know, word gets around. Lawyers tell them, people tell them, strippers tell them, party girls tell them. They all want a piece. One of the guys who wanted a piece? Charles's old mob boss, Gerard Wamet. Wamet was out of prison, and he learned that Charles had moved way beyond sneaking scotch into the ACI. 
that he was making big money. And Wamet wanted to share. One night I'm driving him home. He lived in Swansea, Mass. It's like two o'clock in the morning and he's drunk. And he says to me, you're gonna kick in? Fuck you, I'm not paying tribute to anybody. He says, uh, you know, all I need is a car to follow us. You pull over the side of the road and I blow your fucking brains out and I get in the other car because that's how easy it is for me. This is the type of guy, this is what he was. No matter, he never had friends, he killed all his friends. We got some information that Gerard wanted to, uh, to dump him. This is Brian Andrews, former detective commander for the Rhode Island State Police. He heard through an informant that Wamet had put a contract out on Charles. And with that information, I went out and um, went looking for Kennedy. Got him on the go. So I stopped him and I told him that uh, we had information that uh, Gerard was going to kill him. Brian Andrews, detective commander, he said, pulled me over. He says, they are going to kill you. He goes, I got to tell you, they will kill you. And I'm like, okay, Brian, you know, I can, I can take care of myself. Charlie would never tell you anything. He was kind of, kind of a smart ass. Um, I, I told him uh, I want to take a picture of his uh, hand. So when we found his body, we'd be able to identify him by the rings he had on. Brian actually took a, a picture of my hand with the jewelry. And he says, that's so we can identify your, your fucking, your dead body, your hand, your jewelry. Thanks, Brian. You know. Charles was feeling the pressure. Well, you must have been looking over your shoulder all the time. I was. It was not a good feeling. You're not worried about the police, the state police, the local police, the feds, the DEA. You gotta worry about your friends saying the wrong thing, and you gotta worry about your enemies, powerful enemies, killing you. It was a lot of stress. And as Michelle learned one night, even Charles's beloved wolves weren't safe. I will never forget this moment when I went over his house. I was by myself, and he I, the door was opened. He didn't even come to the door. I saw some tissues around, and it was very dark. And I said to him, what's going on? One of the uh, cops killed his prized possession female wolf. One of my favorites, I have a picture of her somewhere, Tatiana, it was a female wolf. And she had disappeared. And boy, you know, I got an uneasy feeling I'm out in the kennel. And I heard two gunshots. They got her. And I was real upset over that one because that animal was very special to me. And he said, would you believe that they, they made a gloating comment to me and said, I have a lead bullet for your wolves and a silver bullet for you. And my heart broke. For people like Michelle, the glamour was fading. When did you know it was too much? When I wouldn't leave his house. 
when I would have to call my ex-husband up because I couldn't make it to pick up my son. Your head's so full of cocaine and alcohol. Even if you're not drinking for a week, you're, you're still like, whoa, I, I, you know, what am I going to do with my life now, being a young mother? I was one of the ones that just lingered around. And but there's so many people coming in and out, in and out, in and out, you know. If it wasn't me, it was another girl. If it wasn't another girl, it'd be another girl. But always the same faces. And feeling like shit. Feeling hopeless, helpless, alone. When you're living in that type of world, you're gonna crumble. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are. You're gonna crumble. Nothing like that will last forever. Charles was growing more and more isolated. His old friends in the mob wanted him dead. The cops wanted him behind bars. He retreated to the safety of his secluded house. I recall uh, this particular day, it was in the summer. I would spend a lot of time in the kennel with the wolves. And this Black Hawk helicopter, unusually low altitude off the deck, I'd say about 150 feet. And I look in it, and I see a face that I thought I recognized. And he's looking back at me. I froze, and I froze him in that stare. I said, I know that face, and I, I got a bad feeling about it instantly. It was a DEA agent, and I said, this is trouble. They were thorough, and they were intense, and they were going to stop me. They were on you. They were on me big time. Charles will be back in future episodes. But next time on Crime Town, prosecutors build a case against mob boss Raymond Patriarca, and they come up against some stiff resistance. His doctor. I said to him at one point, Raymond, you'll go to trial over my dead body. <laughs> he got a big kick out of that. <laughs> Crime Town is me, Zach Stewart-Pontier, and Mark Smerling. We are produced by Drew Nellis, Austin Mitchell, Caitlin Roberts, and Mike Plunkett. Our associate producer is Laura Sim. We're edited by Alex Bloomberg and Caitlin Kenny. Fact-checking by Mick Rouse. This episode of Crime Town was mixed, sound design, and scored by Matthew Boll. Additional mixing by Kenny Kusiak, Martin Peralta, and Enoch Kim. Additional sound design by Ted Robinson at Silverson. Our title track is Run to Your Mama by Goat. The opera track is, sorry about the pronunciation, Unbalo and Mashera, composed by Giuseppe Verde, performed by Melanie Henley-Hein and the Slavic National Opera Orchestra. The credit music is Full Blown Addict 
by Marty Kane. Original music by John Cusiak, Kenny Cusiak, John Ivins, Edwin, and Beanart. Our ad music is by Matthew Boll. Our digital editor is Kate Parkinson Morgan. Our design director is Ale Lariu. Alex Bloomberg is the podfather. He doesn't drink, he doesn't do drugs, but he does like to, well. This season of Crime Town is dedicated to the memory of Bill Malinowski. Thanks to the Providence Journal, Julia Haymans, Emily Wiedemann, Lisa Newby, Mary Murphy, and everyone who shared their stories with us. For a full list of credits and for bonus content from this episode, visit our website at crimetownshow.com. You can find us on Twitter at Crimetown and on Facebook and Instagram at Crimetownshow. And if you're enjoying Crimetown, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps others find out about the show. Thanks. Providence is a special place, and we're honored to tell a part of its story. Cousin and I, one time, we're going to show you the guy, the captain. Now, guy lives in this house right here, and uh, he, he was buying... There he is, right there. This is the captain. This is the captain. Should we? You don't want to? No, 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 no. The no, guy's no. the fucking captain. <laughs> I thought I recognized the face. <laughs> yeah. He hasn't changed in the head area. Yeah. Ain't it? So it's all white hair. Let he, me go hung him, pick him <laughs> up, Bunker. Sure. No, he doesn't Happy want. Happy time. He's 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 really scared. Yeah. He's like a. <laughs> I'm sure he's he wasn't scared when like, he was riding around four kilos in a fucking yeah. bath car. He wasn't scared then. Yeah. Fucking right around yeah. hours.